This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In 1976, the body of Anna Mae Akwash, the American Indian activist, was found frozen in the badlands of South Dakota, or so the FBI said. After a suspicious autopsy and a rushed burial, friends had Akwash exhumed and found a 32 caliber bullet in her skull. In his new book, The Unquiet Grave, The FBI and the Struggle for the Soul of Indian Country, our guest today Steve Hendricks reports on a conspiracy, murder, and cover-up that stretches from the plains of South Dakota to Washington, D.C. Hendricks is an investigative journalist who has written for the San Francisco Chronicle, The Nation, The Boston Globe, and The Seattle Weekly. Steve Hendricks, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, you, now, you're in Knoxville today, huh? Well, I'm actually calling from family, uh, uh, visiting uh, the great-grandparent of my wife uh, out in Tyler, Texas. So oh, coming to you from Texas today. Well, well uh, very happy to them. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about Anna Mae Aquash. How did you come to this story? What, what was your path that led you to her? Well, it was. Uh, I was living in Montana at the time. You're right that I now live out in Tennessee, but I was writing about contemporary Indian issues in Montana. I wanted to focus on a subject for a book, and I wanted to write about something that had not been covered much or, or not been covered well and that needed to be covered. Uh, and in Montana, as in so many Western states, uh, the, the, the story that just screams out at you is the, the state of what's going on on Indian reservations today. So I, I began looking into a more contemporary book, but as, as I did that, I kept hearing these tales, these tragedies, these atrocities that dated to the 1970s. And these were stories uh, that people said, um, you know, at, at back in the 1970s, the Indians, we Indians had our civil rights movement, our big movement for rights, and it was crushed by the federal government. And that is part of the reason why Indian reservations are in the state that they're in today. There are more reasons. It's more complicated than that, of course. But, but if you can imagine, say, the black civil rights movement of the 1950s or 60s having been chopped off at the knees before it reached fruition, and then think about what, what state, the, the southern states in particular, but for, for that matter, all of black America would be in, that's, that's uh, somewhat analogous to what you've got going on out in Indian country. And so I began prying into some of these these older stories uh, and found that they hadn't been covered in quite a while, and there were many mysteries that remained. And the story of Anna Mae Aquash, as you dramatically recounted in your intro there, uh, was uh, it's impossible to miss when you start looking at these. It's just It just screams out at you, that, that so-called mist, in, in quotes, mist bullet in her head. Yeah. Um, how can you not be drawn into that? What was her background? Why was she, uh, you know, yeah. uh, why is she an important figure in, in the American Indian movement? She was important for a couple of reasons. One, the American Indian movement was a movement largely led in public, anyway, by men. And uh, she was, you know, it was one of these 
kinds of things, and so many of those wonderful movements at the time, <clears throat> they had a, 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 you know, many failings, and one of them was they were completely sexist. So women did a ton of work behind the scenes, but rarely lo- rose to the, the forefront in public. Aquash was an exception, because she was a strong, determined woman who simply refused to, you know, let, let, uh, the men take all the glory and to recede quietly into the background. And so she was she was an important symbol uh, to many Indian women uh, for, for that reason. <clears throat> but she was also important because she was involved with an entire network of leaders in the American Indian movement, the foremost of, of the groups that were agitating for Indian rights back in the 70s. And, uh, the, you know, as my book talks about, the, the story here is that the FBI did everything in their power to infiltrate and undermine this movement. And Aquash was one of the targets. <clears throat> she was someone that the FBI wanted very much to to get rid of. Now, I'm not saying that the FBI had her killed, but she was, <coughs> excuse me, allegedly threatened during her lifetime with death by the FBI. And I believe, credibly, I believe that she was indeed threatened with death by the FBI. So this was someone that they wanted off the scene. Here she turns up dead, and they and they behave in a completely mysterious, shocking way with, with her dead body, and it led to all sorts of speculation about what it was that the FBI wanted to hide. It's the mystery that I start my book with, uh, and the mystery that sustains much of the book. I just want a little bit more background. This was uh, Wounded Knee occurred in 1973, is that right? That's correct. And can you just give our listeners a little bit of uh, the story of sure. Wounded Knee and how... how uh, the the American Indian movement um, was was late uh, in in the scheme of uh, civil rights and similar movements at the time. You know the Black Civil Rights Movement, Cesar Cesar Chavez's uh, Hispanic Farm Workers Movement, the, the Women's Movement. All these movements sort of burbled up in the fifties and sixties. Indians were were so trodden upon for so long, and they were so widely dispersed across the country. It, it took them a much longer time to get going. So their movement really started gaining momentum in in the late 1960s, uh, where, where they actually seized Alcatraz Island out in uh, in the San Francisco Bay, uh, and held that for 18 months in protest against federal policies. And then eventually, as you say, in 1973, they seized the village of Wounded Knee uh, on the on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in western South Dakota, where most of the Unquiet Grave, my book, takes place. What what they wanted more than anything. I mean, they, were, they had a you know laundry list of grievances, all of them legitimate. They had an enormous uh, 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 list that they wanted righted. But the biggest thing that they wanted was the restoration of the many hundreds of broken treaties that that our government had signed with Indian nations over the centuries, and then broken. Now they knew they weren't going to get that, because what that meant in in reality was the return of much of the stolen land that we had taken from Indian tribes and, you know, of course, appropriated and become rich off of and so on. But, But it was realistic to think that they might get some land back in certain specific places, and it was realistic to think that they might get other things. For example, in return for all of this land that they gave us to grow and prosper on, we promised that we would 
would take care of them. We would provide them with education and, and health care and so on. Uh, and, and, and needless to say, the, the education system and, and health care systems are just deplorable, have been and, and still are on many Indian reservations. So, so these were the sorts of things they wanted, and this was what terrified uh, uh, the federal government and, uh, and, for that matter, the non-Indian landowners of, of all this land. Now, I think what might have terrified the federal government, too, was the fact that uh, a majority of Americans were behind the Indians, were they not? You, you know, you're absolutely right. In, in 1970, certainly for a time, and it, uh-huh. it didn't last, uh, uh, unfortunately. But in 1973, when um, AIM, the American Indian Movement, had had they had tried every legal maneuver out in South Dakota to to try to win some changes in a local government out there on the Pine Ridge Reservation. It's the reservation of the Oglala Lakota people, people we know. As, as Sioux, but they prefer the word Lakota. Um, they had a corrupt puppet government out there that, uh, that was running the, the tribe, the tribal government, and uh, was doing the bidding of the um, the federal government to squash AIM and to squash uh, dissenters and so on. And AIM had tried every sort of legal maneuver possible uh, to to get rid of this guy, and it, it was sort of like uh, it was sort of like a, a black civil rights uh, group trying to win justice in Mississippi of 1950 or something. There, there just wasn't <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> um, and and so they eventually decided they had to seize the village of Wounded Knee. And when when they did so, when they took this, and I mean they took it by by force of arms, by weapons. They were surrounded by a makeshift army of hundreds of FBI agents and Bureau of Indian Affairs police officers, and U.S. Marshals, uh, and, you know, there was a standoff with thousands of bullets flying back and forth. Eventually, a couple of people were killed. When they first took it, you know, polls were taken. Do you support uh, these folks seizing an American town by force of arms. And, and the amazing thing was, yes, more than 50% yeah. of the American public said, yes, we do. Long overdue. Should have, should, have, should have done it long ago. I mean, can you imagine something like that happening today? Well, I'm just, um, and this is what a lot of people, how they know about people like Russell Means and Leonard Peltier. Right. That's These are the, these are the two the most well-known figures that emerged from from the the siege of of wounded of wounded I'm not wounded of Pine Ridge, and uh, there is something. Uh, is there something about this sort of a remedial fatigue when it comes to discussing the the plight of the American Indian remediation uh, fatigue? I should say, in the sense that the American people are, it's not something that's on the radar screen. Something we don't ever really talk about. And the idea of trying to redress these hundreds of years of inequity and, and, and injustice perpetrated against them, it's, it's almost, I wouldn't say it's beyond our comprehension, but it's beyond our ability to kind of know where to start, and, th- and therefore we don't really want to deal with it. Is there, is there an element of that in this? There's definitely that. I mean, there, there are a couple of things going on in what you say that, that are, I think, right on. One of which, <coughs> excuse me, is that the, um, the, you know, we don't understand why they cling to these grievances for so long. Uh, you know, we don't understand why they can't just let bygones be bygones and go go on their way uh, and, and live and prosper as most Americans do and get a normal job and so on and so forth. Uh, but, but to take the case of the, the Oglala Lakota people, for example, the land we stole from them was sacred land. It was their Black Hills. 
this is their their cathedral that we took from them and there's no there's no getting around there's no replacing that there's no other way that they can you know uh, other place that they can go to that's that's sacred you they can't just make a new sacred place this is the place of their myth and their jerusalem and and so on and so forth and and you're absolutely right that uh, Americans don't understand that. We haven't been educated about this, and trying to explain this concept to most Americans is a, is a well, it's an uphill battle, and, and to date, a losing battle. Mm-hmm. But but the, the second part of it, you're right that most Americans don't know where to begin, but there are some fairly simple solutions out there, mm-hmm. and, and the issue that stops them from being implemented is not a matter of not knowing what they are, but it's a matter of the political will. So, for example, you know, much of the land that we have stolen is now in the hands of private non-Indian landowners, right? Mm-hmm. So in order to give it back, I mean, talk about a political upheaval, you'd be taking this land from all these usually right-wing folk who you know, don't want to give a millimeter of their, their land to to Indian people, let alone the whole shebang. Um, and, and that would be very difficult. But, but much of the land that we have taken, particularly in the West, is in the hands of governments. Much of the Black Hills, almost all of it, is owned by the U.S. Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, some state uh, government entities in South Dakota, and so on. You could give this back or or at least give portions of it back or, or implement some kind of joint management program that would allow the Lakotas to benefit from this land, you could do that without disturbing uh, a single white landowner in South Dakota. So, it, you know, this is land that, that is eminently returnable, and but, of course, we refuse to. But you identified the, the main impediment, impediment, good grief, I can't talk today, impediment, which is a lack of political will here. Absolutely. You know, and uh, what are Indians going to do? I mean, good gosh, they're, depending upon how you define them, they're 1% to 2% of the American population, very thinly scattered about so many states. We had a policy, uh, essentially, of genocide over the years, and their numbers dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. Um, and, and so, yeah, they're, they're a tiny, tiny minority, and, um, and, and this was the power of the American Indian movement back in the 70s. They managed to take this very trodden upon, very tiny minority and, and get an entire nation, uh, not only paying attention to them, but for a time, an all-too-brief time, alas, uh, supporting them. We're speaking with Steve Hendricks. The book is Unquiet Grave, the FBI, and the Struggle for the Soul of Indian Country. I want to move up now to, to 76, and, and uh, Anime Akwash's body is found there uh, in, in no man's land, essentially, on the edge of nowhere. What, what was the, the story, uh, of uh, at least the official story at that time, about what happened as soon as they found the body? Well, you know, the official story was that the FBI has jurisdiction for crimes, major crimes, on Indian reservations. So murder, rape, those sorts of things. So they come out, they look at the body, say there's absolutely no indication at the scene or on the body that there was any sign of violence whatsoever. They take her, as, as you said in your intro, to the hospital, had an autopsy done. The government pathologist concluded she had died of exposure. They said that she was also, she'd been sitting out there in the elements for a while, and she was so badly decayed, they had to rush her for the sake of public health into a grave, as it happened, an unmarked grave. And this would later turn out to be a lie. They had to do this before they could identify 
body. <clears throat> but, but they were still going to try to identify the body, and, but, but they claimed she was so badly deteriorated they could not take her fingerprints at the scene, so they, which would also later turn out to be a lie. So they did this very gruesome procedure, which is almost never used and which probably actually delayed the, um, the timing of, of the identification of her and made, made it take longer. And they chopped off her hands, which was following in a, a long history, actually. We have a history in America of um, cutting off Indian body parts and shipping them back to the capital as proof, you know, trophies that these folks are dead and then receiving a bounty and so on. They did just that. They cut off the hands. They didn't know they were working in this tradition, of course. Um, but but it, it, when, when the word of that came out, it had a very strong, deep resonance with Indian folks. Cut off her hands, sent them to Washington, D.C., to the FBI lab. Word came back a few days later, uh, several days later, that this was Anna Mae Aquash. And when her friends heard that this was her, they said, uh, this, you know, no way she wandered off just in the middle of nowhere and, and died out in a blizzard or something, uh, particularly on Pine Ridge, which was nearly in a state of civil war at that time. No one went anywhere alone, let, let alone Anna Mae Aquash. So, um, so they've demanded an exhumation. She was exhumed, and as you said, the, the bullet was found in her head. In her head. And how, how a pathologist would have missed a bullet that entered the base of her skull exactly. and ended up in near her eye socket or something, right? Right, the, right. Uh, and, and the pathologist, the independent pathologist for the family who found the bullet, it took him, you know, they exhumed the body, they opened the casket and unwrapped the cloth around her. And in about three seconds after wow. laying eyes on her, he saw the bullet. Well, and the people in the hospital saw the bullet. There's a whole trail of people yes. that saw something that uh, indicated... I mean, they found blood, matted blood uh, on her hair right away. I mean, after right. they did the, they re-autopsied, and they found all kinds of things that obviously they did not want to find in the first autopsy. Right. So the, we can... the first pathologist had even uh, removed her brain uh, and examined it, and the bullet, of course, had traveled through <laughs> her brain. So, you know, the, the, fact that the thought that they actually missed a bullet is, is almost impossible and, to believe. And Anna Mae had a history with the American Indian movement. She did. You know, the, the, the way the FBI undermined AIM was they sent infiltrators into the group. And, and the infiltrators did several things. At its most benign, they were merely spies. They were, they were, you know, trying to find out what AIM was going to do and reporting back to the FBI what, what these deeds were. But at its most nefarious and insidious, they were agents provocateur. They were people who whose job was to sow dissent and to spread paranoia and to point fingers. You know, AIM, AIM and other leftist groups at the time knew they were being infiltrated, of course, and they were terrified of it. And so these provocateurs would go in and they would, you know, point fingers and say, so-and-so is an informer. They might even turn up, in, in quotes, turn up a, a document or two that might lead people to believe that someone was an informer. So at the same time, as I said earlier, while Aquash was being threatened with death, allegedly, and I believe so, by the FBI, because she was um, not going to turn on her friend. She was not going to become an informer for the FBI. So at the same time she was being threatened with that, she was also being targeted inside AIM by people who wrongly thought she was an informer. And, and perhaps, though we don't know, this is still remains a mystery, perhaps also targeted by some of these agents provocateur. So, so she was... Uh, by the end of her life, very uh, she was terrified 
yeah. both of her of the FBI and of her colleagues in AIM. At yeah. the same time, she was completely devoted to the movement and couldn't leave it and didn't want to leave it, and that led to her death. And I assume she was effective. <laughs> it doesn't, it, they would, she wouldn't have been the subject of all of this uh, attention if she had not been an effective leader within, within the movement. Yes and no. Uh, she, she was effective. Uh, there's no doubt about it. She was competent and organized, and, you know, I mean, it was a very difficult uh, job. You know, a lot of what she did was trying to raise the awareness of the press. In particular, she worked for a time about a year or so yeah, out in L.A., ran the California office of, of AIM. And, you know, it was hard enough getting press in South Dakota, but half a country away out in California, it was even, you know, more difficult. Uh, but, but she did, yes, she did do a good job. The reason I say yes and no is that one interesting thing, certainly the FBI targeted those people who were most effective, no doubt about it. But the FBI's methods were surprisingly scattershot. I mean, they're a real mix of big brother, you know, omnipotent and omniscient, and keystone cops, incompetent and uh, unable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they really went after anyone that they could, anyone they could get a, a lead on. And, and in part, that was because, as I said, they wanted informers in these groups. And anyone, no matter how low-ranking, uh, no matter how incompetent or ineffective, um, might be a valuable source of information. So if there was an opening to go after them, they would. They did. When, remind our listeners once again, we're speaking with Steve Hendricks. And the book is The Unquiet Grave. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, uh, the investigation, where did it go after they, they, they the determined Boston, that, yeah. yeah, there's a bullet there. Did, this, did right. it travel very far after that? Well, the uh, the FBI then claims that they undertook a rigorous investigation and and found nothing, and for for twenty five years found almost nothing, and and they they claimed and so no one was charged with this murder until well into the late nineteen nineties, actually until uh, in, into two thousand two or three, but but they the, what what their story was was you know look. Back during this time, with all this turmoil between AIM and the FBI, no Indians would trust the FBI. Uh, we couldn't get the information we needed out of the Indian community. There were people who knew how she had been killed, but we couldn't get the info that we needed. So, uh, so we knew nothing for so long. And then eventually little details would trickle in, but we could never get the follow-up and so on. Well, you know, people suspected for the longest time that it was because the FBI had some involvement. In, in her murder. One of the, the smoking gun documents that I found shows, you know, I sued the FBI for, I'm still suing them, uh, but I've sued them so far for three and a half years or so to get documents out of them. Mm-hmm. And one of the documents I found was a report from an informer within days of Akwash's murder, before her body was even found, that said uh, there was this woman uh, described Akwash without naming her, uh, but described her in enough detail that it was fairly clear it was her, uh, who was uh, kidnapped in Denver by Indians, taken to South Dakota, interrogated, and eventually driven out to the reservation, shot, and here are the three people who did it, and here's how and why. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the FBI is claiming for decades it knew nothing, couldn't solve the case. And here it had been handed, it had been handed the solution to the, 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 you know, the answer to the case within days of her murder. And then sure enough, after her body is found, just to emphasize that there was no mistake that this, this was Akwash, the FBI went back, looked at this informer's report and said, yeah, that was obviously Akwash that our informer was telling us about. 
So why is the FBI lying to us yeah. for two and a half decades that it couldn't solve this crime when it had it solved? And and they're and still then, covering up is is uh, because if you're uh, I mean you're having to sue to get certain information. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. I wanna, I'm, I'm going to ask you one quick and I hope not too out there question about the <laughs> FBI and the culture of the FBI. Sure. Okay, I mean, a lot of people see them. In fact, they describe themselves as the colonial police force. At one point, the, one of the agents in charge. Right. Is there something, and this is not intended to be a slur on anybody, but is there something about the culture of the FBI in particular? And I've always understood that there is a preponderance of Mormon uh, agents, people of Mormon faith that are in the... Is there something about this sort of Old West mentality that sort of bleeds through in that culture that would create, that would... It somehow contribute to this sense of the FBI being in charge. Are of they the, cowboys? Is that yeah? What you're I guess. Am, am, is there any? Am I just way off base here? <laughs> uh, you're, I don't think you're too far off. I couldn't speak to whether uh, you know. I, I do understand that there is a higher proportion of Mormons in the FBI than in popul- you know society at large. I, I couldn't tell you whether that plays a role or whether other groups do. But but it, you know it, it, there's absolutely there was certainly then at the time something in the culture of the FBI and that's you know J Edgar Hoover when he took over the FBI back in the 1920s a longtime director held it till he died you know 50 years later in the early 1970s he had banned anyone from the FBI who wasn't a white male from becoming an agent you could be a secretary or something but who was a who wasn't a white male um, upstanding moral character uh, kind of person. Uh, and so there, there, were, there were zero Indians, for example, in the FBI at the time. And these folks who came onto the reservations had absolutely no understanding whatsoever of the people that they were dealing with. But the other thing that was in the culture of the FBI, though, was they had, through that entire 50-year reign of Hoover, viewed anyone, anyone who worked to change the status quo as a threat not just a mild threat, but a threat to the American Republic. Yeah. Enemy of the state. Yep. And, you know, this, it didn't matter whether you were violent or not. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr., when it was announced that he was going to be given the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, FBI agents sent him an anonymous blackmail letter trying to get him to kill himself. I mean, that's how, how, yeah. how strong a threat they viewed you know, King, this nonviolent preacher to the to the American social fabric. So you can imagine rabble rousing Indians out on the plain, seizing you know uh, Alcatraz, seizing the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in D.C., seizing Wounded Knee. Here. My gosh, Here, here's um, here's a group. The top. Here's a group with 400 years of grievances right. to deal with. Well, um, I've asked a question that I'm sorry I did because that's a, this is another interview. To be honest <laughs> with you, to talk just about what has indeed. happened to the American Indian. Uh, since the uh, since the pilgrims landed, yeah, this is a fascinating book. Steve. It really is yes. the book. The book once again is the unquiet grave, the FBI and the struggle for the soul of Indian country. And Steve Hendricks, thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me, guys. Really enjoyed it. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.